Hey everybody, this is Phil Town. And this is Danielle Town. And we're here for uh, Invested. We're here for Invested. Yeah, it's our podcast and if you guys haven't been here before, we are um, kind of using Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger as our model for how to invest. I'm teaching Danielle. I've been doing it that way for about 35 years. And well, you haven't right? been teaching me for 35 years. It came out like that, didn't it? <laughs> <laughs> You've been teaching other people for 35 years, and I've been avoiding you for I'm glad you put it that way because years. I have been trying to teach you. <laughs> oh, no, it's totally well me. over 35 years. <laughs> this is definitely the cobbler's children have no shoes. <laughs> kind of. A, well, it's not really. That's because the cobbler didn't have enough money to make him the shoes, and he's too busy. <laughs> but that's not the case here. No. Not the the cobbler's here. child did not want to wear shoes. So many shoes around the house, you get a little tired of shoes. You yeah, know? that's it. It's a little uninteresting, the shoes. Yeah, but then something happens as you go into your life and you start to realize, huh, what does happen, by the way? Which is the subject of your new book and our new book. Whoa, that was a really impressive transition. I just thought of that. Um, it is the subject of our new book. Also It's named. funny because the reason you keep saying your new book and then you change it to our new book mm. is that we wrote it together. We did. But it's in my voice. And so all the stuff that's like, that is me is what I wrote. And then we basically edited it together. Yeah. So it's, it's like ours but mine. It's a little It's like that. Like that. Yeah. But it's more too. There's more to it. Tell me. Well, the publisher doesn't even talk to me. <laughs> that is so untrue. It's pretty true. That is so untrue. Lisa just talks to you all the time. No, that's which is incorrect. great. I'm happy. It's all good. <laughs> but they really love you. Well, I love them. They just put up. They with love me. you. You're just busy, Dad. Well, they, you I, happen they, to have about four different jobs. They matronize me. They matronize you yeah. instead of patronize. It's all. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies are Sexist matronizing joke. me. <laughs> <laughs> so we have a new book out. Called Invested. Well, it's not out yet. It's not out yet. But yes, you it feels like it's out because we've been working on it for like a year and a half. And it's been such a labor of love. Yep. Um, but you, yeah, it's, we're so excited. The, the cover is up. The page on Amazon is up. Like you can pre-order it. It's This is happening and it's going to come out. Uh, March 27th. Yeah, and what, rapidly approaching. It's it's really a book about why you decided to start to learn how to invest, and then me teaching you to do it. That's exactly right. Exactly what it's about. Yeah, from a from you know it's for everyone who listens to the podcast. And by the way, we're broadcasting this podcast live um, on video as well, so you guys can check us out. Come watch us. Um, if you're listening to it now, you can check it out later. Uh, it'll be up on the various channels around the interwebs. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, so the book is very much like the podcast. We're live recording on, we're live recording. We're live recording. Yeah. Oh, that's the We're live. <laughs> you can watch it anytime you want in the future. That, actually, that made total sense to me for about we're three live seconds. We're live recording. We're live recording. But we are, because people always ask me if we edit this podcast around like, dumb stuff we say and I'm like, no, nope, not really. Every dumb thing we say is in there. Yep. Straight on Straight in. up. Um, so what let, back to what I was asking. What please. what was it actually that what is the most single most important thing that drove you to decide to learn to do this? Panic. 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 Yeah. Which came about because what? Because I was sick. I loved my job, but I was physically ill from exhaustion, from stress, from, it turned out I had mono and I didn't even know it. Like I was just sick. And I started to think, as I was saying to you on another podcast recently, 
I had student loans, I had a mortgage, like uh, all I had done all the good stuff you're supposed to do and I didn't feel like I was getting ahead at all. And I started to realize I had to do something else. This so, wasn't going to be I mean, you were getting ahead in your career and everything, but getting ahead financially, getting ahead where you could have some financial security. Yeah. And you were you're making really good money. Absolutely. Absolutely. So that kind of drove us Which to can tell you think about how even people making this. really good money need some yeah. help. Like yeah. things are tough out there for a lot of people, yep. including, it sounds silly, but including people making good money just because of how much investment it takes to get to that level. How much it takes to get to that level. So you've, you're trying to pay that back. I mean, how many millennials are out there loaded up with debt, right? Everyone. Yeah. How many? Everyone. Yeah. Which is crazy. It's by horrible, the way. by the way. Start a I, I, revolution I could, on that one. Okay, here's the revolution on that one. Yeah. Is that the cost of a college education has gone up astronomically faster than the cost of living. Why? Yeah. I think it's because colleges have to offer all these extras and are competing with each other and that's making the costs go up dramatically. That would be the opposite direction you would think of Why is that? competition. Competition tends to cause prices to go down. Yeah, but like I think Like you get to raise prices when, you know, nobody else is doing it or you have some sort of monopoly or oligopoly and you can't, you, you can push up prices for that reason. Like people want what you have yeah, so badly. Yeah, but they're not offering equal commodities. They're offering very different degrees is their commodity, right? Mm. But in a very different prestige levels. As in Harvard, Harvard is different than, than Iowa whatever. State. Or like whatever. Not, to, not to demean Iowa State. No, not means. at all. Which is really my point, I would say, is Iowa State shouldn't be demeaned at all. The, the education you get there as an undergraduate might arguably be better, might be better. than what you get at Harvard Absolutely. as an undergraduate. Absolutely. You know? Um, I know that. You, you always know, say when you went to I community took every college. Kind of college. Yeah, and you always say when you went to community college, you got the best education the best of anywhere. education. Whenever some 18 year old asked me where I think they should go to school, I said, like, your community college, you'll get a better education. Yeah. Because the people at the community college are there to teach. Mm -hmm. The people at Harvard <clears throat> are forced to teach freshmen, they don't want to. It's not an intellectual challenge to some genius in his field to teach freshmen, right? So they, they, they lecture and they have their grad students do it. And yeah, then, I know. mean, there are some very good courses there. I'd, oh, yeah, for sure. So <laughs> let's not totally <laughs> Not to just demean like, Harvard, <laughs> you know? No. We don't want to demean anybody. But I think it's like an easy <laughs> thing to be like, oh, it's the worst. And it's, no, it's a very good education. Okay, so let's, let's argue here for a second about what in the world could have driven those prices up. So, okay, fine, the Ivy League could say, we have an exclusive product, it's worth more every year, you should pay us a bazillion dollars. Okay, maybe so, they got an argument. Yeah. But why is Iowa State going up? I don't know, do you know? I think I do. Tell me. Yeah, I think this is one of the unintended consequences of trying to be fair um, on, a, on a governmental level. By creating a guarantee that your loans will be repaid Effectively, what they did is open the door to colleges raising tuition as high as they wanted to. Be Obviously, there's some competition that slows it, the process down, but if everybody who's running a college realizes that, huh, the federal government is going to make loans available and guarantee them, um, we can charge more. 
they're going to charge more. I mean, I, I agree with that, but it is directly opposed to your previous argument that competition should have driven prices down. The fact that there's essentially cheap money guaranteed available should mean that prices go down and they get higher volume of people. Well, let's take a look at what you, you argued, is that Harvard could raise its prices because it has a superior product, yeah. or outcome at least, and so Harvard raises its prices. And everyone else down the chain looks around and says, oh, well, Harvard has just moved it up 8%. Can we do that? And then they test it. Let's move it up four and see what happens. And the kids still pay. Now, why do you still pay? Because the government's gonna get you the money. So you'd never run into a scarcity of funds because the government yeah, is constantly coming in and saying, oh, right. we'll cover that. Right. Whereas if Coca-Cola, <clears throat> for example, keeps raising its prices, at some point in that price raise, you stop buying Coca-Cola and substitute a cheap cola, Yeah. right? But that isn't happening with colleges. And, and therefore, the cost of living, which has averaged about 3% um, over, let's say, since 1970, that would be like roughly 50 years, 3% is going to double the cost of a college every 24, 25 years. So let's say a college cost $10,000 in 1970, then it went to 20, then it went to 40,000. By now, that's at the standard of cost of living, whereas colleges have actually gone up much faster than that. They've gone up at about seven or eight percent. Mm -hmm. At seven percent, you double it every 10 years. That's five doubles. So if the college was, let's start with $1,000 in 1970, you go to 2,000, 4,000, 8,000, 16,000, 32,000. So what was 1,000 to me is 32,000 to some kid today. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Excuse me, I'm getting a frog in my throat. <clears> throat> Sorry. You want some water? Yeah, you got some water. Mm -hmm. So the, the, the point being that in colleges, the, the desire that we have for all kids to go to college has created a monster that doesn't have a lid on it. I think that's really true. The part about the monster with no lid and the part about easily available money in, in the form of loans being able to support this constant rise. I also think that they're not trying to raise their prices. I mean, except for the for-profit universities, which are minimal and, by the way, have their own major problems, the not-for-profit universities aren't trying to keep people in debt. Like, they're doing the best they can, but at the same time, they're in a competitive world, and that's just real, because people move around much more than they used to. Flying to the East Coast for college is not the giant trip it used to be. Mm -hmm. People don't stay in state necessarily. And so they are competing on a national level and sometimes on a global level. And they just have to offer like a nice new athletic center because the school down the street did. With a swim slide. With a swim slide. <laughs> they the really university, have to do that. Oh my gosh, when I was at the <laughs> University of Colorado, they were building their new athletic center and or their new like gym, swimming pool facility, whatever. And it had three hot tubs on the outside, and I was like, "Where am this I? Is a am, state am I in a hotel? Like the state university? What is happening here?" Not only that, but I just took a look at, and I may have this a little bit wrong, so if you're at Yale, forgive me. But it looked to me like the administrators at Yale increased their salaries by some, you know, exponential rate, while professors increased over this entire 50-year period of time by about 50 percent which mm. is very low yeah. incremental rate. Oh, it's so, so professor salaries. Yeah, those aren't haven't been going up. Administrative salary. For example, the uh, you know, professor makes what 200,000 at Yale. Um, the the college um, attorney, 
the counselors, I think over two million, maybe a million and a half to two million. Probably something like that. Under the argument to be competitive with the to private sector. To be competitive with the private sector. Yeah. So something has radically changed there that has created an enormous problem for the kids that are trying to get an education. When I started back from the army to go back to college, I could literally work my way through college. I, I, I could make enough money working part-time and working full-time in the summers as a guide to, to get through college. You can't do that anymore. No way. I mean, it's just, it's just burying us slowly, and it's going to only get worse. I mean, I live in Europe now, and from getting to know people who grew up in Europe, who went to universities in Europe, they just, it's just a completely different experience and feeling when you come out of college at 22, they don't have the debt. And yeah. the choices they can make because of that, it's just like I have, I, I almost can't even describe how different the feeling of life is. It's like you, you're not, you don't say, like, it's not like you're around a bunch of people all the same age as you and we're all going, oh yeah, dude, like debt, it's, you know, what are we gonna, like, it's, I'm, just gonna, I'm gonna be 45 before I can even like save for well, a down do payment. Do they don't have the same, oh, you mean how do they not have the same Yeah, fees? how do they keep uh, their costs under control? Well, they don't offer all the stuff the universities offer here. There's no essentially, There's essentially no university sports at all. Right. At all. So you go, it's like a job. You go to school, go to that's school. your job. Plus, governments subsidize it a lot. Mm -hmm. So it, not all of them, but... But that would argue that they could just keep raising their prices. So when they subsidize, do they also control costs from the government? I don't know the answer. They, may, they must, otherwise they'd yeah. have the same problem we have. Yeah, and then <coughs> private schools like Oxford, Cambridge, you know, they do their, they just have so much money from being super old yeah. that, uh, that they can also subsidize their costs that way. But I mean, there's also a lot of complaints that they're too expensive. Well, speaking of exploding costs, real estate's another one. <clears throat> that becomes really problematic. Right now? Mm -hmm. Okay. So, for example. Yeah, because what we were going to talk about today is like the stock market going. The stock market exploding. Upward. Right? So, real estate costs, and I think I, we may have talked about this before. When my, um, my dad, at, <clears throat> excuse me, at 24 years old, out of the military, 1946 or 47, bought a house in Portland. It was a very small home, two bedrooms, one bath, a little car garage nice neighborhood, $5,000. Well, he was making $5,000 a year as an entry-level bookkeeper with no college, right? Now that same entry-level bookkeeper in Portland right now is making thirty-five dollars to $40,000. Mm -hmm. Coming out with no college, just entry-level bookkeeping, mm -hmm. maybe a couple years of experience. And that exact house now, which is 70 years old, is selling for $300,000. So <clears throat> what you can see is that the Housing prices have gone up, what is that, 60 times? It's 60x. Something, it's something like that, yeah. Whereas the salary has gone up seven. We have that story in our book, and we have an adorable <laughs> graphic about it. It's <laughs> which crazy. illustrates it very nicely, I think, that my brother-in-law made for <clears> us. <throat> because it just goes, one goes like way to the top, and the other one goes, not really at all. And they're just yeah. so sad and they're so separated where they started out at the beginning. And think of what happens. I mean, back when I was born, my mom could stay home. She didn't need to have a job. My dad could get a house paid for in one year salary. Um, and now 
everybody's a two family working, two working family. Kids are being raised in daycare. It is, you know, it's the world is, and by the way, we have crime like you cannot believe compared to what it was back then. It's just not even okay. in the ballpark of the same. So, so basically, all of those things like are kind everything's of the worst. Is that. Well, some things are not the worst. Is there like a colon and then here's what we're going to do about it? <laughs> I don't know what we're going to do about it, except that housing, except to think about why well, I know what those we're things happen. Okay. Right? Housing prices driven for the same reason as the cost of college going up is that government came in and started guaranteeing loans. It started telling banks, we'll buy your loans from you. And that means they could be much more aggressive about making a loan because they're not going to be on the hook for it for 30 years. Mm -hmm. And as a result, the money was so much more velocity, it would go out to a, to a borrower and then they'd buy a house and then the money would be bought by the federal government and then they would get more money put into the bank and the bank could lend. In other words, making, instead of making 10 loans a year, you could make 1,000 loans a year. Uh -huh. Well, if you're making 1,000 loans a year, there's just that much money floating around buying houses, house prices are going to go up. More demand, more demand, increasing the prices. Yeah. So housing has gone up roughly the same rate as universities. Not quite that fast, but pretty close. So you have government in there trying to make sure that things are fair, that people are getting an opportunity to, to, to buy a house who wouldn't have otherwise gotten that opportunity. And as a direct result of that, we have now our mothers have to work and two-family income still can't hardly buy a house. I mean, you could. You, how hard is it to buy a house right now in Boulder? For example, well, there's a whole. You know, case I mean, okay, there's other itself. factors going on there. Because yeah. Denver, then. Denver. Oh yeah, Denver's <clears throat> exploding. Yeah. So this is to me, this is vastly unfair, and it comes about from uh, dramatic government interference in the market in an attempt to be fair. And as a result, the end result is who who's okay? Well, the rich people are obviously okay. Yeah. But people who don't have a lot of money are not okay. Their kids are struggling under a pile of debt. Um, families have two working incomes and still can't afford a good house <clears throat> in a good neighborhood. And all of that stuff is part and parcel of what drove you, I think, to oh, this decision. that's what we're getting That you're to. going to have to do something other than just work. <laughs> just working it's, yes. is not enough. And it's not going to be enough a lot more in the future than it is in the past because <laughs> Because, why are you laughing? Just because, because was, I had no idea <laughs> I mean, this is where this, that was leading. This is, it doesn't come out of nowhere. It used to be my- It came back to me. Come oh. on, man. My, my dad was working, making no money, and he was fine. They were fine. They worked, they had a little no, home. I, I got, we, we got it. Okay, we got, got it. it. Yeah, yeah. Because um. I'm old, I can see this stuff happening, <laughs> and it's going to get worse. It isn't going to get better. Nobody's going to- end student loans. Nobody is going to end mortgages. Nobody's going to end any of the things that are driving these things up. And so it's going to get worse as time goes along. The more these problems occur, the more the government's going to get involved to fix the problems and make things fairer for people on the bottom, and the more the problem will exacerbate into more inflation. And what that means is what we're seeing in the stock market is going to be more volatile, more more flashy stuff going up, 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 and then flashing down, and up, 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 and flashing down. And nobody knows what's gonna cause the crash to come down. So when we started off last time, we were talking about, hey, let's talk about this wild market ride we're on, mm. with the Dow hitting new levels in the S&P and the Russell, all going up faster and faster all the time. What should we do, right? What should we do? Well, you can, you can do what your financial advisors tell you to do. 
stay in, keep investing in the stock market, and buy those indexes, all right? And when you do that, you put billions of dollars to work in funds that are purchasing index-driven stocks, which are driving the index up, which encourages more Hmm. investment into that thing, yeah, which is driving it up. We've talked about this before. And you're cycling. That there's this somewhat inflated fake investment in these indexes that's happening. Right. And it hasn't happened, so it's a guess, but I think you're right that it could come crashing in a much more dramatic way than it has before because of these index investments. See, when, when no one is setting the price, of a thing, it's mm-hmm. not related to anything at all, then you have a problem that is, a problem that gets created is that people who are watching the price accelerate, like in Bitcoin, um, the new one is Ripple that just took off a thousand percent or something. The stock market, when nobody has, when there's no relationship between the price of a thing and its cash flow or its ultimate value, then all you have is momentum. And momentum, can continue to drive this market to insane heights, right? Mm-hmm. As it did in 1928, 29, 1998, 1999, 2000, just higher and higher and higher and higher, just like tulip mania back in Holland. It just it makes no sense. Mm-hmm. But then again, you know, people are making money, jumping in, Bitcoin, they're jumping in. Nobody knows what the price is. Maybe it's cheap, maybe it's not. So people are jumping in and driving this thing and they're not doing it with a brain. They're not looking for price compared to value. They're just- It's pure market speculation. Pure speculation. Mm -hmm. And that's what index investing is in this market when no one is setting price. Now, that's not the case, literally. I mean, people are still setting price, but index investing is now some 30, 35% of the market. And there's no one knows how much percentage of the market it has to be before it completely becomes crazy right, that no one's really setting price, the market accelerates, and then for no known reason, here comes the black swan, and boom, down you go. When you buy an index, does that money not ever make it back to the underlying companies in that index? No. It just, it's like stays in the fund that represents the index, is that right? No. Tell okay, me what Okay, well does. this is important. Okay, first off, the, the companies that have money in the stock market, do not receive the money from the purchases and sales of that of that stock of theirs. It's called a secondary market. Mm-hmm. So the, the money that they get, get from the stock market is done with an offering out to the market that the company itself makes and is typically subscribed to in an investment banker's offices yeah. without ever going into the public. Mm-hmm. It, they just hand it out to their clients. And that money does come to the company in exchange for shares of stock. So they dilute the number of share the number of shares out there gets double, and they take this money, and that is what the company can use. And of course, when they do that, that is done based on a price that the stock has in the open market, or what's called the secondary market. But when you're buying and selling stock in the regular stock market, what we do, it's just going to the person that owned it, not the company. Mm-hmm. Some sometimes the company is retiring stock, and it's taking stock out of the market in buybacks. But in general. Most of the, it's the money still doesn't go to them. They're yeah, I I think I phrased it poorly. They're paying it out. So what I meant is like, not does it actually come back to the bank account of the company, but does it come back to the stock the stock of the company? 
Like, does that make sense? Well, so like if I buy index A, mm -hmm. and index A has two companies in it. Mm -hmm. Company an index of two. That's right. Company X and company Y. And so I bought that index fund, mm -hmm. right? Then does the stock price of underlying company X and company Y correspondingly move up because mm -hmm. I bought sort of their stock? In a, in a really simplistic market, there's no, there's, there's sellers, but they're reluctant to sell. And here you come with new money that you just took from your job yeah. and you put it into the fund. Yeah. And the fund manager then is required to purchase the weighted amount of stock okay. of A and, or X and Y okay. and purchases that stock from a reluctant seller. And if the seller is reluctant, he's going to raise his price. So it does come back <coughs> to the underlying companies. No. Not the actual company, the stock, the it, underlying stock. Yes, it goes to the owner of the underlying stock. Yes. And, you know, it's a market. So if a lot of people are selling, then, <clears throat> then your purchases um, simply slow down the price drop. If a lot of people are buying, then your purchases accelerate the price raise. Yeah, okay, so right. it does relate. Like those two things do relate. The well, reason I keep saying company is because you've trained me to not think, buy stocks, uh, right. you buy companies. You buy companies, <laughs> and that's right. And But think about what's going on with these two companies now um, in the terms of the index. So the index is this S&P 2. Yeah. Not the S&P 500. Okay. Okay, so it's the S&P 2, <laughs> and it is at 100 before you walk in with your pile. Right. And you buy the index, because that's what your advisor's telling you to do, or your robo-advisor is making you do. You buy the index, and so you put in this money into the index, and they purchase the shares of X and Y yeah. in the proportion that they are in the index. Okay. And they're reluctant sellers, so the price moves up of each of those two stocks as you buy it. And what happens to the index? Well, it's the price of those two stocks. It goes up as well, yeah. It goes up as well. Yeah. And now you're encouraged because you just made money. Mm -hmm. You're thinking, ah, that's pretty cool. I put money into the index, the index goes up, I'm making money. Mm -hmm. All right, well, are you? Now let's put some more money in. Again, reluctant sellers. And again, after you put your money in, the index goes up. Mm -hmm. And you repeat this process for 52 straight weeks. And every single week, the index goes up after you put your money in. It would not be hard to conclude that this is a great investment. Every time you buy into it, it goes up, all right? But this is a logical fallacy. <laughs> this is the logical fallacy of a chicken. <laughs> you heard me tell you this before. You remember this? A chicken? A chicken. When I was a kid, when I was like a little kid, your grandfather and grandmother had us on a little little tiny farm and we had chickens. Mm -hmm. Okay, so the chickens would hear the screen door slam and then they would come running because every time the screen door slammed their whole life from the time they're chicks, they came out and got fed. It's Pavlovian. Yeah, well, it's just a response every just like the Every time something happens, something, something else, else happens. Every time. And it's good. And, and it's good. And it's good and it's good. You start to associate a slamming screen door with a good thing, mm -hmm. right? And then one day, my dad walks out, slams the screen door, and he comes out and takes a chicken and chops his head off. Mm -hmm. The chicken did not see that coming. There was actually no relationship between the slamming of the screen door. Exactly. And the food. And the food. It was just a people beating bongo drums in the sunrises, you know? It's like, oh, we better not stop beating those drums. 
if we want the sun to come up. Yeah, okay? but the, on the other hand, I can see the chicken's logic. It's, this is, yeah, this is a decent Infallible, logic. Infallible, really. Well, no, it's, within if you the study logic, world of the chicken. It, there's a limit, right? Because within the world of the chicken, it's, and within the world of the index investor, they're eating the One same. One must expand one's world. Yeah, you have to look and see, okay, well, is, is the index going up or is my money driving the index up, yeah. right? Is there something else making the index go up that's ex external to me putting my money in? And the answer right now is likely no, right? More and more people are putting more and more money into the US stock markets from all over the world because there's, there's so much positive news from the US stock market since Trump was elected. There's so much positive news in the economy. Wages are going up, unemployment's going down even farther. Um, there's so many things going on that are positive that people are seeing that, oh, the stock market's the only real good place to be. They're, I don't want bonds, bonds are paying nothing. Um, real estate's really expensive, back to where it was in 2007, so that's a little scary. What if they raise interest rates, then real estate will go down. So people are putting their money in the stock market from everywhere in the world. And as a result, these indexes are going up because people are doing what? They're buying indexes. There's, no, there's not as many people actively purchasing individual stocks. Mm -hmm. So as that continues to accelerate, it's very much that chicken story. The screen door slamming, you get fed. The screen door slams, you get fed. But at some point, you get your head chopped off. So what to do in this market? <laughs> well, <laughs> watch well, out for the ax, I, mean, I would say. We just spent a number of weeks talking about what gurus are doing, investing gurus, yeah. and they're not doing much is the answer. Yeah, they're, they're either buying private companies cheaply or they're holding cash. And we see that now, we, when I say they, I mean gurus that follow our style of investing. Mm -hmm. There are obviously other people who are aggressively investing in this market, just as there are other people aggressively investing in Bitcoin and have been killing it, right? Yeah. So we don't call that investing, we call that speculation. Investing is buying something that has an intrinsic value based on its cash flow Kay. for less than what you paid. Sorry, for less than what it's worth. So you pay less than what it's worth, and what it's worth is based on its cash flow. That's the basic idea. So in the book, we talk about the 10 cap, right? Yeah. Like we're looking for a very simple valuation structure. I'm gonna let structure. the investing definition go. All right, continue. All right, so we talk about that 10 cap as a way of, of valuing a company that's really, really super it's simple. It's a way of pricing a company. Pricing a company. And we don't try to value it. Right. Because we recognize there's a real problem, a real fallacy in figuring out the growth rate into the future that we dimly see. Mm -hmm. We don't know. Mm -hmm. But yet we, you know, discounted cash flow analysis from, from business school. They tell you to figure out the growth rate and then they figure out, you know, what's the what's the the multiple that you'd see on that growth rate when you sell the company down the road so many years. And you calculate the cash flow coming out of that growth rate and you discount it back to today at some rate of return that you want. And that's how you get to a value. But it's got a real problem with it. And the real problem is no one knows for sure what that mm -hmm. future looks like, mm -hmm. right? Or what that multiple should be. And that's be. that was the source of <laughs> some major 
discussions between us. It really was. <laughs> we got into it pretty good. <laughs> because I just wanted to know how on earth do I figure out the price of these, like what should I be paying? Like Charlie Munger says in his fourth principle of investing to find a price that makes sense mm -hmm. and that has a margin of safety. Mm -hmm. Well, that's so simple and so obvious. What are we going to do for the rest of the semester? Well, Charlie I'll tell says. you what we're going to do. We're going to figure out what the hell that means because <laughs> I have no idea. And what we landed on after many discussions yes. was three different ways. Right. Essentially triangulate your way into it. Yep. And you're so this this makes me feel safe, by the way, to have a couple of different methods of coming into it. The 10 cap is one for pricing. Um, the what you just described, which is you call the margin of safety analysis, mm -hmm. which is in the book rule number one, mm -hmm. that's in there too. Mm -hmm. And then we have a third pricing method that is also pretty simple and based on free cash flow. Right. So between those three, I feel pretty safe coming at an eventual like, okay, here's a price that makes sense and right. that gives me a margin of safety. But um, it's, it's hard, like it's confusing. And based on that growth rate, you're right. It's looking into the future and it's yeah. a lot of uncertainty. So the best thing is to just, I think what, what Buffett describes is kind of how people tend to go about buying real estate, which is just a general understanding rather than a very specific guess of what the growth rate of their rents will be into the future. Are you talking about the 10 cap now? Yeah. Okay, so let's, so let's talk about the 10 cap. <laughs> <laughs> well done. So th the way people buy real estate typically is you look to see, is this neighborhood deteriorating or improving? If it's deteriorating, people don't really want to buy real estate there, right? Mm -hmm. Because you recognize in 20 years, I might not have a good investment. So we want to buy where the schools are good, where the, where the neighbors are, are solid people, where you have, um, uh, the, the community is improving rather than going the other direction. So there's some basic things that you look at to try to get a sense of the future, yeah. right? So that's the first thing. What, what do you understand about this business of buying that house that you're gonna rent out? Well, what I understand is it's got a good location. That's really what it boils down to. It's a really good example because it makes it very clear to me how automatically I think about that stuff when I'm thinking about a house or a condo or an apartment, like you immediately just think about the neighborhood, the building, who's around, what does the street look like, and what are the prospects? Yeah. Like we all think about that immediately because it's just part of our world. And it's the exact same thought when it comes to a business yep. that's not real estate, like an actual company kind of business, but it feels like a shift, it's really not. It's not, it's just what's the location? Mm -hmm. That's what you're gonna look at. Location in real estate is the moat that is what protects it for mm -hmm. this long-term view of this investment. So if it's in a good location, then it's got a good protection against competition because other neighborhoods are not as good. And, and so, or other cities are not as good or whatever. So you're picking this one because it's got the best long-term potential for what you're looking for. And so that idea of moat or, or location, if it's easier to think of it like that, is how you have to think about a business. So when you're looking at a business to buy, you wanna think, what protects this thing? And if you've got something like that, then the 10 cap basically says, if you've got that and you trust the people who are running it, then here's the price you should pay. Real simple, 
take the cash flow from this business, the owner cash flow, which means what you put in your pocket from that house rent every year, assuming you're gonna hold a fund for long-term maintenance issues, right? You got a little set aside there. What's left is in your pocket, you call that owner cash flow, multiply times 10 and buy it for that price. So we call it the 10 cap or 10 times capitalization. So that results in a very nice investment from Charlie's point of view, because a fair price means to Charlie, you're getting a 10% yield on your purchase. Mm -hmm. So you put up $100,000 for this house, a 10 cap means you are getting $10,000 a year in your pocket because you paid 10 times that to get the house. Well, I don't think Charlie says 10%. No, Warren says 10%. Okay, yeah, no, that's right. <laughs> and Charlie says fair price and they're buddies and they yeah. really do a lot of investing together. So I'm pretty sure Charlie feels pretty confident about that. But I mean, I'm glad you mentioned that because it actually comes straight out of one of Warren Buffett's shareholder letters in 2014. He wrote this whole letter about real estate and the real estate that he's bought based on I don't know if he says 10 cap, but basically on this capitalization pricing method and how it's been a really great investment for him. Yeah. If you can find, I mean, that's the, the, the catch there is if you can find something that has that kind of return, right. then it's a great investment. Now, what I'd like to show you is that this has a couple of other names for it, this thing we're talking about. And let's go into that next time. I, I, it's gonna take a little bit of time to go through that process. Okay. But I wanna introduce you to a couple of more ways of thinking about this. Of thinking about the 10 cap? Mm -hmm. Okay. That are used by Wall Street that you're gonna run into. Oh dear. Mm -hmm. So we'll do oh, that next time. Oh, we're moving into valuation again? Mm, yeah, My we're favorite wandering topic. right into it. Oh dear, all right. <laughs> <laughs> Prep everybody for the book because, because at the end let of me the tell day, you something. Let me tell you something. Okay. Are you ready? Yeah. I tried so hard to make this as clear and as simple and as unintimidating as possible. And that's a huge reason why I wrote this book. Did you get there? Yeah. <laughs> Good. Because when we spoke on the podcast about valuation before, I mean, it's hard to do it just speaking. You know, yeah. there's so much that you really just need to see an equation. Yeah. You really need to just practice it yourself. So I think we've done it well in the book. Let's find and out from uh, the readers. Hopefully they think we've done I it well. I hope so well. too. Yep. But we can go ahead and muddle it up a bit. <laughs> <laughs> Why not push it forward? Why not? We'll so we'll assume, we'll assume you've read the book even though it's not out yet? No, we won't assume that. Why would we assume that? I'm teasing. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so next time. There's no joking about math, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Next time we're going to talk about more about what do you do in this market and a little bit of understanding about what this market is right now and how other investors are looking at this 10 cap thing. Cool. Okay, cool. All right. So until then. Thanks, everybody. Time to go play. Bye. See ya. Hey, thanks for listening to Invested. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Head over to investedpodcast.com for our show notes and a special offer on how the podcast listeners can attend my three-day transformational investing workshop for free where we just teach the heck out of you for three straight days. We don't sell anything and we get you a scholarship to come to it for free. So come on over there and take a look at that. And by the way, as our lawyers want me to say, everything discussed on this podcast is either my opinion or Danielle's opinion, my opinion's right, and is not to be taken as investing advice because I am not your investment advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. 
So this podcast is just for your entertainment and education only, and I hope you enjoyed it. So until next time, time to go play.